So successful brands in our eyes are made up of a couple of things. A, are you solving a market need? Is there an available audience that will spend on adaption? Are you doing something new or different, either in marketing or flavor profile? And finally, most importantly, do you have a home base where you can get at least 10 to 15 lighthouse accounts to buy in? Because once you get that, you're in. And so those are the things we look for in a brand. Welcome to The Business of Drinks, a podcast dedicated to helping beverage alcohol businesses grow and thrive. I'm Felicity Carter. And I'm Erica Ducey. This season, we're focused on drink startups. How does a brand go from idea to launch and then plot a path to success? What hurdles do brands face along the way and how can they overcome those challenges? Stay tuned as we investigate. Welcome to Episode 7 of Business of Drinks. Hi, Erica. Who are we talking about today? So today we're talking to Brian Rosen. He runs a company called BevStrat, which is a sales and marketing arm for small brands, brands that are under about 100,000 cases a year or less. And he operates in seven states and comes to this role with a ton of significant experience in the industry. So he was CEO of one of the largest retailers in the United States. Sam's Wine and Spirits, which was about did about $100 million in sales. He was partner at PricewaterhouseCoopers in the adult beverage practice. Mm-hmm. And now he also is running an investment firm called InvestBev, dedicated to BevAlk Investing. They have about $250 million under management, and he runs also a beverage incubator. So like, what does this guy not do? That is the question. He doesn't run Business and Drinks podcasts. That's why <laughs> we asked him for money and he said no. <laughs> But apparently he says yes to lots of other people. You know, I think what's so fascinating about this is finding out that there's a service that just makes everything so easy. Yeah. You know, when we started this podcast, I was like, oh my God, how could you possibly take a small drink and, you know, turn it into something in the US market? Yeah. But it turns out there's a way to do it and it's not nearly as difficult as I thought. Right. And, you know, we keep hearing from everyone that we've talked to, from a Hamlet hound to all of the experts we've brought on the show, how you really need to lean into one specific market own that market. Yes, yes, that's right. So in the case of Christy Frank, who runs Hamlet Hound, you know, she has all of this beverage uh, experience, both as a retailer, as a brand ambassador, as an employee of big conglomerates. So she was able to build up and essentially bootstrap 50 or more accounts that were both on-premise, off-premise for Hamlet Hound, the RTD we're following. And that's not totally easy. I was talking to a spirits brand yesterday that is an up-and-coming spirits brand, and they were saying, oh, we just hired our first employee and we're starting to get out there and get into the marketplace and get some accounts. You know, talking to them really made me realize how difficult it is if you don't have experience in the industry. Mm -hmm. Because you essentially, if you are a new founder, you have to be going out and making these relationships fresh and new all by yourself, or you have to hire someone. And so the person that you hire, even if it's a single 
person, that's what, $75,000, $90,000, something like that, to have one person boots on the ground out there selling your brand. And that's where BevStrat comes in. So I think this will be a really interesting conversation to hear from Brian, the kind of alternative fractional sales and marketing service that they offer, which I didn't really realize when he broke down the cost structure and also kind of their guaranteed number of accounts that they hit each month for you, as well as sort of their average placement rate, 10 to 14 percent. Like, you know, once you start looking at those data points, you're like, something like this actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's right. So I think it'll be a pretty interesting episode for a lot of people to hear. Well, I certainly learned a lot. So let's get into it. And now, a word from our sponsor, ExcelPay. At The Business of Drinks, we talk about building successful brands. But there's one crucial element that many overlook, the e-commerce experience. It's true. I've landed on so many terrible BevAlk sites with broken links and 20-step checkouts. And don't forget about alcohol sales compliance. Navigating the three-tier system can be daunting, but it's essential to ensure your operations run smoothly and are legally compliant. Enter ExcelPay. From a one-tap compliant checkout to comprehensive sales data, ExcelPay has you covered and can make your existing site a storefront. Visit excelpay.io forward slash BOD to get an exclusive 10% off your account. That's A-C-C-E-L-P-A-Y dot I-O forward slash B-O-D. Welcome to the business of drinks, Brian. We're so excited that you could join us today. Thank you, ladies, for having me. So let's just hop in. So we have heard from many of our guests that there's a variety of different ways that you can start to scale up and really approach sales in either your own small market or multiple markets. And BevStrat has come up in several of these conversations. So we wanted to check in with you and really learn about BevStrat what inspired you to start it and how it functions? Well, this is an easy one because I've been a lifelong booze guy, a lifelong beverage guy. And fun fact, my grandfather was the very first liquor license in Chicago after Prohibition. Oh, wow. Hang on a second. He, he got the first liquor license. Was he trading in liquor before Prohibition ended? <laughs> so I can't confirm or deny that. I really can't. I can only share with you that Al Capone was at my father's bar mitzvah. Wow. And we have been that license in Chicago in perpetuity and then nationally forever. So to your question, I've seen small brands come and go over the last 50 years of my life. And having grown up in the liquor business, both at retail and consultancy, um, and advisory services. And I've seen a lot of brands. And when we started to have success at BevStrat and the other companies that are part of the kind of our growth beverage umbrella, I made it a mission of ours to support the little brand because it's they're, they're horribly disadvantaged. You've got in the US, there's over 50,000 brands that have COLA approval and only 500 account for repetitive skew velocity. Could you explain what COLA is? So COLA is the kind of the approval from the government to sell an alcoholic beverage. Okay. And the acronym means something, but really what it means to me and what it should mean to your listeners is that it's a license to be a brand. And so you have 500 that matter and 49,500 don't. So we chose to be the advocate for that small brand. And that's how BevStrat was born. 
How does BevStrat work with its clients? Generally speaking, people come to us. We've got a very high Q rating online or a high visibility online. And so brands would come to us through our, our own podcasts or our newsletters or our LinkedIn profile or what have you. And they would say, look, I'm working in a market and my distributor is not paying attention to us. Or I'm with a 3PL like MHW or Park Street or LibDib or whomever. And I need a sales force. And oftentimes these are people that are far from their place where they're selling, which I never understood. But you're two guys in Minnesota making a bourbon and you want to sell in L.A., doesn't make sense to me. You sell in Minnesota first and then you go out from there. But so they need a sales force. So Bevstrat gets hired. We work for the brand and then we go out from door to door, on-premise, off-premise, chain, mass merch, and we present their items for sale. We get the orders in, we submit it to the distributor of record and they get delivered and billed. And what makes you choose to work with a brand? Oh, so many things. I mean, that's a great question because not all brands are created equal and not all brand entrepreneurs is a word I've coined, are made equal as well. The most important thing for a new brand in my eyes and the eyes of our whole team really is two things. So the the one most important thing is two things. One is you have to be capitalized. You can't shoestring this thing. It's so expensive to be in the booze business. And by booze, I mean wine, beer, and spirit. But it's super expensive to be in, in that. And the second thing is you need to have patience. You know, people look at Tito's and they're like, oh my God, Tito's. They don't know. And we do know. And you collectively on the podcast know. Tito's took 20 years to go. 20 years of home equity lines, of of all of these different things that cost money. And then it finally clicked in. But I was selling Tito's in the 90s at Sam's in Chicago. And I couldn't give it away. Could not give it away. In fact, it used to be a free good with absolute. So all of a sudden... People had a craving for their marketing scheme, which was homegrown, Austin-based, folksy. Here's my dog and guitar, and I make this stuff in my garage. All of that marketing, of course. But it finally caught fire, and Tito's is now the number one vodka on earth. That's so interesting. Yeah. Do you remember when it suddenly took off, and what was happening in the culture around it that suddenly made that so appealing? It took off at the same exact time when a $14 vodka was needed. The great financial crisis, 08, 09. GFC. So consumers would trade down. I mean, don't forget one thing about the GFC and COVID after that. Unemployment rate was in double digits. Inflation was high. People were losing their jobs. And so people had to trade down. Drinking never stopped. They just traded. So one $50 bottle of bourbon became two $25 bottles. And so they were perfectly positioned when Absolute, Ciroc, Kettle One, etc., became too high priced. Tito's was a great alternative and it was American made, which played really well into the sentiment of no Russian, no French, not vodka made from grapes or whatever. It's a good American story. So, you know, we've been following a brand this season called Hamlet Hound. And this is a small RTV brand made in New York and It is distilled on a farm license. You know, they're able to do some sort of self-distribution within New York, but now they're looking to expand. And so they've done a couple runs. They've sold through their first, you know, 250 case runs, and now they're kind of at an inflection point. So I wanted to ask you about a company like this. Is this a good time for a company like this to approach you, or do you need to be much farther along? You know, when should companies approach you? That's a great question. And so there's four companies that we run under the moniker Growth Beverage. BevStrat is what we're talking about today, but there really are four. There's Sprout Beverage, 
which is an incubator and accelerator. Oh, So it takes new brands in, it teaches them two years worth of mistakes in a three-month cohort, right? So we've determined through data that a new brand starting up will spend between 75000 and 125000 in brand mistakes. So for some diminutive fee, you go through Sprout Beverage and we bring in distributors, wholesalers, accountants, lawyers, marketers, formulators, product design, on-premise, off-premise, all these different people, we bring them in and give you the education it would take you a year plus to get with experience. That's Sprout. Bevstrat we're talking about today is the sales and marketing arm. InvestBev is a company I have that is a roughly about $250 million private equity firm that invests in brands. And then Algoma Capital is our fourth company, which is a debt facility for distilleries. So when we talk about when's the right time to come to Bevstrat, the real question or a reposition of that question is, what's the right time to come into the engine, right? Because you can come in as a brand new brand like Hamlet Hound, and there are things I'm on their website now, there are things I would change immediately. I can tell right away that this is a new brand. I can tell right away that they're inexperienced within the category. Their website is apologetic as opposed to affirmative. You know, hey, we're really good and we're in a can or we're really good because we're in a can. And there's different ways kind of to approach these things. And so Sprout would help them. And then we graduate them right into Bevstrat for sales and marketing to get into a market and to have boots on the ground. Because I'm guessing by what I see here that they need support uh, at the ground as well. So there is no wrong time. The question is, at what point you come into the growth beverage engine and how can we support your brand at that stage? Can I jump in there and ask you, in your incubator, the $75,000 worth of mistakes, what are the top mistakes you see? Oh my gosh. You make mistakes with legal, right? Because you go to the wrong lawyers and you need liquor lawyers to get rolling. You make a mistake with COLA compliance, what we talked about earlier. You have to change your label around to be government compliant. You make mistakes with formulation, with you know, you go through months and months of formulation and reformulation, the right alcohol level, wrong flavor profile, the right ingredient, the wrong ingredient. You make a mistake in choosing the wrong state based on something that you think is relevant, but isn't. So for instance, launching a gin in the winter in New York is silly. People aren't drinking gin in the winter in New York, no matter if you live in Brooklyn or Queens. You yourself are not the demographic you're seeking. And if you make a brand for yourself, things you think are relevant, you're going to have a customer of one person. So you look at gin in the same example, a mistake. I'm a gin manufacturer in Brooklyn and I want to have a Brooklyn-based gin. That's great. But launching in January, when the coldest three months of the year are coming, it's not a white liquor time. It is, however, in California. It is, however, in Florida. And given your druthers, you can toil around and really waste ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars a month in burn rate in New York, or you can start generating cash flow in California or Florida. And I mention those states because they're self-distribution states. But when we talk about mistakes, it's those simple things that we educate the brands on in Sprout in the incubator that are game changers. Because if you save sixty thousand dollars in not making a mistake, that's sixty thousand dollars more you can spend on growing and marketing your brand. And can anybody join in or do you have a process? So we we'll, we do have a process. There's an application online at sproutbeverage.com. And the reason why not everyone can join in is because we award $100,000 to the winner. And the very last day of Sprout, we have pitch day and we bring in distributors, wholesalers, retailers, financiers, and all of our sister companies as well. 
and the winner gets $100,000 in investment and services. So it could be, it's an investment from InvestBev. It could be an investment from me personally. It could be it's services at BevStrat. So we don't let everyone in, but you can apply online and then you go through a normal vetting process. And we let in about eight to 10 brands per cohort and we do two cohorts a year. I'm trying to understand if I were a small brand, there's a different options. You could hire your own salesperson to go out in the market and start selling for you, or you could work with a company like BevStrat. So help me understand what does it look like from a cost and reach perspective between the two options? So I can give you real life examples. If you're in New York, to hire an entry-level salesperson is about $75,000 a year plus tolls to get over the Veranzano or a Metro card, plus drag bag, plus insurance, plus this, plus that, et cetera, et cetera. You're all in about $105,000 a year, which really means that person should sell $300,000 a year of beverage. Now think about it. So that's the cost. Then think about the, the personal capital or the behavioral capital. Person in New York can see roughly four accounts a day. You have to get around, right? You're walking, you're on the train, you're dragging a bag up and down the six, et cetera, right? So you see six accounts a day, you see them roughly four to four and a half days a week. So call it five a day for easy math. Five accounts a day, four days a week. That's 20 accounts a week. That's 80 accounts a month, not including sick days, train, transportation, snow, rain, whatever. So 80 accounts a month. So you're paying roughly $50, $60 an account stop if you're a brand owner. For us, we have multiple people on our payroll for BevStrat. You've got no insurance. The brand has no responsibility for insurance, Veranzano ticket, Subway, the whole deal. We cover it all. We also pay commissions. We also pay the incentives. So the brand owner pays one fixed fee, generally between six dollars and $8,000 a month, and they get multiple people in a market. And we guarantee, to our brand owners, we guarantee 125 account visits a month. Because we got multiple people. So we can be in Brooklyn and Queens at the same exact moment. Or lower Manhattan and Long Island, the same exact moment. And so we know through data that we'll convert 10 to 14% of those annualized. If we visit 150 accounts a month, then you'll, at the end of a 12-month year, you'll get 100 to 150 open accounts. So I suppose my question as a suspicious small cocktail owner would be, what would make your salespeople sell mine versus all the other things they've got in the portfolio? In one visit, how are they going to handle an entire portfolio of brands? So let me talk to you, suspicious brand owner. <laughs> we only carry one category at a time in the bag and only six brands at a time. So if you're the gin in the bag, you're the gin. If you're the RTD Hamlet Hound in the bag, you're the only RTD bourbon-based in the bag. That's it. So there's no inner bag competition. We only carry six items at a time. So with that being said, you don't have to worry about, how's this vodka? Oh, you don't like it? How about how's this vodka? Oh, you don't like it? How about this vodka? You know, three vodkas in one bag. That's what brokers do. That's why the broker model doesn't work. Because the broker model only wins for the brand offering the highest commission. That's it, right? So our guys, they're flatline commission. They get benefited on the gross number of sales, not sales individually. And they've got key metrics to unlock the next level of bonus. So we create a level playing field and then all the brands can benefit equally so no one feels as though they're getting jacked. It sounds like this solution takes some of the sort of 
questions or deliverability out of the equation. So like, you know, based on uh, the data you've collected that you can hit that, you know, 14% adoption rate or whatever it is, and you have a certain guaranteed number of visits per month, it seems like that's a pretty attractive solution because it's more or less kind of the same cost as hiring an individual, but with somewhat of guaranteed result. Guaranteed result is a funny word, right? Because we control what we can control and all we can control is the effort we put out. So really the behavior of our reps. We can't control the buyer and we can't control the consumer pulling. And brand owners need to understand that. The first sale is not hard. We've got a list of 200 accounts per market we've gone to for 10 years. And so we know who's buying, who's not buying. And we know who's buying vodka above 30 bucks and who's buying bourbon above $50. And we have all this data segmented. We cannot control the buyer, however, right? So we can do the best job of getting in front of the buyer, but the buyer has to have the need. What brand owners always forget conveniently is that the first order is the easiest. The second order is the hardest. You have to get to a position where the shopkeeper or the bar owner or the mixology program director or whatever it is, they've got to want your brand without a Bevstrat rep or the supplier being in front of them asking for an order. That second order is where brands get built. So a supplier's obligation to their brand does not stop when they hire Bevstrat. They've got to create a pull strategy, which we will help them with at Sprout, right? How do you pull the brand off the shelf? It's one thing getting on the shelf, but then the consumer's got to buy it. So is it your Instagram? Is it geo-targeting? Is it an email program? Is it tastings and activations? Is it liquid to lips? How do you get your brand off the shelf? Because that then shows the account, the liquor license holder, that you are a supplier that also cares about their success, right? So there's a lot to it. So in, to, your, to the very, like this very seed of your question was... It sounds relatively equal. How do we have so much more success? And and the answer really is, it's all these other things. If I'm a rep for big distributor A, B, or C, we all know who they are, big global distributors or big national distributors. I am a 25-year-old person, my first or second job out of college, and I'm selling in lower Manhattan, and I'm walking around. I've got a directive from my boss and my boss's boss to hit KPIs on certain brands that are important to the distribution house. What I sell is in large part predicated on what my boss needs sold to get his bonus, which is in large part predicated on what his boss needs to keep his job. So those rules don't benefit Hamlet Hound, right? They benefit Jim Beam and Jack Daniels and Maker's Mark and Basil Hayden and Booker's and Knob Creek and et cetera. Mm -hmm. So the big distributors, their interests and the small brands' interests are not aligned. And Bevstrat comes in as the playing field leveler. Big distribution likes to see us in the market because they own these goods. It's sunken cost for them. They're not selling the goods. So it sits on the big distributor's balance sheet. And if the brand owner is spending money to get their brand into market, that's looked on very favorably by big distribution. Okay, can we go back to the question of how you get the second sale and how you get the thing pulled off a shelf? You mentioned Instagram and so on. So it sounds like the brand owner can't just hand over the brand to you and you do all the work, that they have to be at the back end doing some work as well. Is that right? And if it is, what sort of work do they need to be doing? It's 100% right. I don't know of any mother who gives their baby to a babysitter and never checks in. That's really what it is, right? 
our kids, my wife would call the babysitter once every quarter hour. You know, <laughs> is the kid still breathing? Yes. And so you you look at how brands are in the market and what the supplier can do. It's that. If you hand it off to a Bevstrat or a distributor or whomever you hire or use, and you're not part of that process, you are going to be just a statistic on the side of the road of brands that have failed. You have to create the pull strategy because think about this business. You've got multiple audiences for the same exact product, right? One audience is your importer. So they have to get it and like it and buy it, buy it and pay for it. They've spent money on you. It's essentially an investment in your brand. Then the importer, if you're international or no importer, if you're domestic, then the importer has to sell it to a distributor. Also, the importer gets paid in full. Distributor now has brand X in their portfolio. Brand X at the distributor portfolio now has to go to a sales team or a representative and get into market. So another audience is your account. You've got to, the distributor's got to explain to the account why this brand off-premise is good for the shelf and why their consumers will buy it or on-premise, why it's perfect for a mixology program or perfect for a drinks menu or perfect for a wine list. Another audience. The shopkeeper then, and vis-a-vis the bartender or the waiter or waitress, the server, has to then explain to the consumer why they want to buy that brand. When I walk into Warehouse Wines and Liquors on Broadway or Astor Street, and I go in there and I'm asking for something new, the shopkeeper has to sell me on this product that I didn't go in there needing. When I go to a bar and I ask the bartender or the server, hey, I want a margarita. What do you recommend for tequila? There's an option there. There's four audiences for every brand, and they're all different. Some are gross margin, some are flavor profile, some are fits in my skew mix, some is great for mixology or for our seasonal mixology list. There's multiple audiences. So tell me for one second where you think the supplier can step out of that equation. Nowhere. I mean, it sounds like, you know, and then you, you have also the consumer audience, which, <laughs> which, which we need those consumers going into the shops and into the bars asking for the actual product. 100%. So it seems like there's just so many layers of advocacy that have to happen in order for a small brand ever to get seen. That's exactly why I don't recommend or necessarily advocate for some of the obscure kind of weirdo brands that are out there. Passion project for a supplier, that's great. If you're super rich and don't care, or if you're a celebrity, for instance, and don't have any equity in the brand, but these people that are creating for themselves, as I said earlier, really have an audience of one person. You can't be so specific that the demographic of your drinker is as specific as the niche that you're creating. I feel like there might be a disaster story that you want to share here. <laughs> well, I've got tons. They give us the most disastrous one. I mean, RTDs are, are, because we're talking about Hamlet, Hound, RTDs are, if you're getting into the RTD space now, you missed the boat three years ago. That's a fact. If you come to us now and say, I want to make an RTD, the ship has sailed. The same thing with seltzer, right? And then they sell, and then so the RTD flavors get incredibly weird cumin this and you know made from a you know an old wooden shed in the back of a farm and that bourbon now is super tasty those kind of things are my disaster stories because you can't tell that story from a marketing angle in two sentences you cannot mm-hmm. you can't you have 17 seconds to get the consumer's attention when they walk into a store that's it so if your story can't be on your shelf tag your bottlenecker if it can't be on your can and easily readable or a QR code, you're toast. 
the consumer has choices and no one needed, and I'm not going to pick on Hamlet Hound, but I'm just going to use them because they're sitting in front of me. No one needed Hamlet Hound yesterday, needed Hamlet Hound yesterday, right? I'm sure the brand is great. You have to create the sessionable occasion where only your brand will solve for. And so from a disaster story, play down the center of the fairway for our golf fans out there, right? Be central, get your audience, and then expand laterally with flavor profile or different extensions, but get the consumer to buy off on the brand as a whole, and then you can experiment. And that's the best way to enter a market. Be down the fairway, get your little piece of the market, and then introduce some weirdo thing to the left or crazy thing to the right. You'll have, not only will you have credibility with your consumer, but you have proven to your retailer and on and off-premise accounts that you can sell. They're more likely to give you more real estate on the shelf as a brand extension than if you come in with some wacko thing, because then they have to go find the consumer themselves to buy it. I suppose a lot of people would say, yes, but I don't want to look like everybody else there, which is another problem. So how do you do what is going to work, but put your own stamp on it, if that question makes sense? Do you do a conventional thing and just make sure you do better than everybody else? Or do you do the conventional thing with just one little added twist? Or how do you navigate through that question? What the three-tier system has created is, as we talked about earlier, a challenging route to market. So you want to be as frictionless as possible. So I'm very appreciative of all the creativity that's in the beverage space. It's why we love it. You can be in the vodka business in three weeks if you had the capital. In a bottle, in three weeks if you had the capital. You'd be selling in Florida in two months. So I am not advocating for vanilla, basic, boring stuff. What I'm trying to communicate here is that it's a very sandpaper road, right? Everything hurts, everything's sticky. The more friction you can take out of it, the greater opportunity you'll have for success. And so when I look at brand entrepreneurs, I really want them to understand they can be to the left and to the right of the center line. No issue from us or really anyone. But you have to be prepared for the more you get left or right of center, the longer the path is. You discovering something in a flavor profile or something unique or different or individual is wonderful, but it doesn't mean the consumer will adopt it. So it just will elongate your path to success. You know, I was just looking at Distill Ventures recently came out with its kind of new class of sort of pre-incubator group. And I noticed that there was like a lot of several tequila brands and like a couple non-alf brands. And, you know, given your experience and with Sprout, I'm curious to know, maybe along with those areas, are there other areas of opportunity for small entrepreneurs coming into this market? Look, non-alc is hot. You can't deny it. Low alc and better for you movement is for real. What people should understand, however, is that not everything is athletic brewing. And the people that are carrying dry January over to now May 2nd, you know, they, they drop like flies every single day. The people that participate in the non-alc and low-alc movement are less than 1% of the consumption public. So in and of itself, double-digit growth in the category and still under 1% is great in a silo, but it's, it's minuscule in the macro. And so, you know, that is a movement that will have its, that will have its time. And we have looked at a lot of deals at InvestBev that are non-ALC and low-ALC, and they're super interesting, but the consumer is not yet caught up with the supply. There's more of supply out there than there is 
consumers willing to, to drink on this better for you movement on a regular basis. Okay, so there's a lot of our beverage alcohol listeners are cheering in the background at what you've just said. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Sure. You know, I've been in the business long enough to see things come and go. Red beer was a thing. Zima was a thing. Mezcal, as wonderful as it is, is still a, a little baby brother to tequila. Mm-hmm. You know, the mezcal, as much as it's grown, it's a fraction of tequila sales. So people look at things in vacuum and say, can I have investment where mezcal is growing 30x a year? And it's 30x a year, maybe, but if you grew 1% last year, 30x is nothing. So it's kind of all about perspective. So when I look at what's hot right now and what's hot going to be at least for this year and forward, we like, obviously, tequila is great. I think a lot of the celebrity brands will die off. I think Terramont, Terramina, The Rocks is far and away the winner, you know, and he'll that will be a billion dollar exit for him. There's no question about it. I just went over a million cases I read this week or late last week. Mezcal is still strong. I also think that Sotal, which is another agave-based spirit, is very popular. I like I like the move towards cans. Cans create a more sessionable activity everywhere. You can bring a can with you. You can't bring a bottle with you. And I like individual serving things. So there's a lot of good things happening in the business. I don't like there's a lot of things that are being packaged in Capri Sun type packaging. I don't care for that. I think that sends the wrong message. And I think that the consumer has been so ingrained that Capri Sun is for kids, that drinking a vodka to go in a Mylar pouch is not going to work. I like the rosé movement. I like the non-alc beer movement. I like the IPA movement. We ourselves at InvestBev, you know, we own a tequila brand. We own a cannabis brand. We own two different wine companies. We're looking at rum companies. Rum is very hot. Rum is going to have its moment because it's with Instagram and all this aspirational behavior out there. Anything that's aged and has it gives people the sense of worth or self-affirmation, Interesting. I think will do well. So high-end bourbon, high-end rum, you know, rare and allocated wines, those things that in this new generation of kind of visual wealth, I think those things are really popular for people because it shows a sense of accomplishment, true, false, or otherwise. I'm not the judge of that. But it ain't vodka. I can tell you that. There's... Mm-hmm. on the shelf at any given retailer. It's interesting because I think, you know, Felicity and I have been talking a lot about luxury and how the luxury market just keeps rising. It's on fire. And I hadn't necessarily considered it that it being so tied to identity politics of wanting to show that visual wealth. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting idea. I don't even know its idea as much as it is real. Just take a look. I mean, all I have to do is look through my own LinkedIn profile or my Instagram wall and you see brand owners flexing with their bottle of cognac and their Ferrari on their way to their plane. And they're trying to communicate that this brand is akin to this lifestyle, right? So very aspirational and it's not really real. And it doesn't talk at all about the brand. It talks about the the marketing of the brand. So I do think it's all tied together. And the same way, frankly, as we started this interview, we talked about Tito's, right? Tito's was the other way. It was the identity of American made. It was the identity of, hey, you don't need French or Russian vodka. We're made right here in Austin, Texas. And you can identify it that way as well. But the world has changed because when Tito got rolling, there was no social media. And these other brands, it's a social media birthplace. That's the labor and delivery room is Instagram, the LDR. And so when I look at the, <laughs> and when I look at those things, that's where brands are born. And you can use these things right? As how you go to market. But you can be very careful because if your aspirational brand is full of baloney, it will get found out very quickly. And if it's too folksy, 
you're going to cut out part of the purchasing economy that wants to be aspirational. So it's a very fine line for sure. Can I ask, I just want to dig into this a bit further. I mean, in my lifetime, I've seen this cycle a couple of times where you get this huge exuberance and lots of money and lots of bling and pretty quickly it disappears in harsh economic times. And it's interesting at the moment, economic times are pretty harsh for a lot of people, but not a lot of others. And the bling is still continuing. How long do you think it will continue for? Or do you think this is a permanent change in the way that people are drinking? Because in in wine, which is what I mostly report on, we're seeing an enormous growth in fine wine among the under 40s, which we've never seen before. I think this is a real movement. It's funny that you say you see it in wine because wine is a little different in my eyes than spirits or beer. So high-end Burgundy, high-end Bordeaux, rare California cult Cabernets, those are not as much for show as they are for enjoyment. Interesting. But a bottle of Cavassier or Erte or Pappy Van Winkle that's just a flex. And so when I look at how aspirational branding works in the wine space as, as opposed to the spirit space, I think that wine consumers generally, they're older, they can be older, they appreciate the finer things, the permanency of finer things, not the temporary nature of finer things. So you're drinking your Chassini Matrache or you're drinking your Harlan or your Bond in your home, looking at your expansive yard, having your friends over for dinner, and the chef is preparing a meal. That to me is a wine flex. And that's a long-term proposition, right? That's a lifestyle. Whereas spending for one night a bottle of Dom Perignon to flex in front of your crew, that is a more temporary thing, right? And so I think there's two different audiences for wine and spirits. And I think the spirit one is the most interesting, right? Because they will spend and spend and spend on different brands. Whereas the wine consumer finds a brand they're loyal to and then hunts it down like Romney Conti, et cetera. I don't have any pride in having five bottles of Happy Van Winkle. I just need one. But to have a vertical of Romney Conti, that means something. That's real wealth. Let's talk about pricing. When you create a, a brand, who do you need to think about in terms of when you put your price? Do you need to think about all the margins along the way? How do you build the correct price for, for what you're doing? So pricing varies on a couple of things. And I'm, and I'm always very sensitive to this, that people that want to come to market at a high price with no brand equity, that's generally a failure moment. And that's a new brand mistake. You have to be prepared to work even or negative for at least a year to get adoption because there is a point in the product cycle where the consumer says, hey, I'll give it a try or it's too expensive. And that generally is in that $29.99 range where you can throw it away to try something new. But if you're at the $34, $39.99, $44.99 on the shelf range, you're no longer an experiment. You're a commitment. And so no matter what the brand is, right? And obviously you've got cost of goods and you've got margin and you've got all sorts of things in there that could increase your price. But as a brand owner, you start with what's the least amount of money I can make out of the gate? Or can I lose money for the year out of the gate? Then you tack on your distributor margin, you tack on your retailer margin. That's how you calculate your price to consumer. If your price to consumer is too high, you've got to go back to your cost of goods and try and get those lowered or your internal gross margin to get those lowered. Because if you are asking the retailer or the distributor to take a price cut, that's not going to happen. And don't forget one thing also, or did you know, you should also add five, six, seven dollars per case in depletion allowance uh, so that a distributor can help sell your goods and another five dollars a case in marketing. So it, this is a tough, tough business. And again, that's why we're in it, but it's hard. It's expensive. And if someone said to you, I want you to try a new something, but you've got a 95% failure rate, you run for the exits with your hair on fire. 
there's a 95% failure rate. 95%, 95 out of 100 brands fail. But this is the business that has 50,000 people registered for COLA. So we talked a little bit about failures, but in your experience, what are the key factors that will help a small spirits brand become successful, to become a national player? Yeah. And to be clear, by the way, I'm not like a failure guy. (laughs) I am very, very optimistic. One of the reasons why we have success at the companies is because we're realistic. You know, we're not going to fill your head full of bullshit. We're going to tell you hey, these are the odds. This is where they sit. Now let's find a way to get through them, right? So successful brands in our eyes are made up of a couple things. A, are you solving a market need? Is there an available audience that will spend on adaption? Are you doing something new or different either in marketing or flavor profile? And finally, most importantly, do you have a home base where you can get at least 10 to 15 lighthouse accounts to buy in? Because once you get that, you're in. And so those are the things we look for in a brand, and those are the things that will kind of lead to success. But I can't stress enough, you need to be an engaged supplier. You need to be a supplier that's involved. You need to have pull programming. You need to be up your sales team's ass all the time so that they perform for you. Because as a sales company, if Hamlet Hound doesn't make it, there's 10 behind them. But as Hamlet Hound doesn't make it, that's their only shot. Right. So you have to be cognizant of the two sides of this coin. It's a little bit of Occam's razor. Right. So, you know, when I when I look at some of this stuff, there's plenty of opportunity for success, but you have to be methodic about it. You methodical. You can't just create and hope it works. There's a lot of work that has to happen between your idea and then selling to Diageo. So how does Bev Strat get paid? We get paid on a, a monthly retainer for our account visits. Right. And at what point do you go? this is getting really big. How do you scale up? And what happens next once you've conquered Manhattan, I hope? What's the next step? Well, it's a conversation. It's not for us to choose the next step. Our biggest moment of pride is when a brand graduates. We don't want you forever. We want you to get out. We want you to go to big distribution. We want you to get the radar of Southern and Breakthrough and RNDC and Wine Warehouse and Young's Market and Opeechi and MS Walker. And we want you to be on their radar. But here's the thing. Southern's not going to pick you up until you have 100 and 150 points of distribution in a market because they don't want the risk. And you can't get there by yourself. So we play that piece. And one more thing to note, let's say you have a friend of a friend of a cousin of a babysitter who knows someone at Southern and they're going to put you in their inventory. That's great. But Southern is going to assign a margin to your brand that will be commiserate with their effort in selling your brand. So what does that mean? It means that if I go to Southern and I've never been sold anywhere, but I know someone who knows someone that picked up my brand, they bought a pallet in New York, something that should be $30 on the shelf is now going to be $44 on the shelf because Southern has added 15 extra points in effort to the margin, to the cost of goods, to the account. If I go to Southern and I say, here's 150 stores that buy from me already, and I need you to work at 25 points on this. Generally, that's a conversation they'll have because you've done all the work, you've done all the effort. And if in scenario A, you get to Southern first, you have a really good opportunity to price your brand too expensive for the market. In scenario B, you've done the work and your brand will have a much greater chance of success because you're sitting on the shelf at the right price you need to be. And I want to make sure I understand. So if I were a brand to contract with Bevstrat, do you work market by market? So like the $6,000 to $8,000 a month would paying would be going to one specific market or does that go to multiple markets? Like how does that play together? That's one specific market. So for instance, that's New York. 
that is Florida, that is LA, that is Illinois, that is Colorado, that is Texas, et cetera. And again, from a cost perspective, it is still exponentially less expensive than having your own sales force. And think about one thing also, if you're Rue de Blas de Rue in Loire, how do you manage a sales team when at 10 in the morning here is four in the afternoon there? And then by the time the on-premise and off-premise accounts open, it's bedtime in Europe. It's very hard to manage a team like that. You have only a few hours in the day. And what works for the European managers is prime selling time in the US. So a four o'clock meeting European time is 10 a.m. here. That rep is on the ground in the market, doesn't have time for a one hour Zoom call. So it's just, it's easier, frankly, and more efficient to have a sales team on the ground here that manages the sales team on the ground here. Great. Well, I know we're running up against time. So I think that's a great place for us to wrap up. Thank you so much for joining us, Brian. Yeah, it was brilliant. Thank you. And we wish all luck to all entrepreneurs out there. It's important to come to this market and look at it with wide eyes. It's possible to have great success here. You just have to know the rules of the game. Awesome. Now we've come to the part of the episode called Last Call. So Felicity, I have a question for you. What is your go-to drink at a dive bar? At a dive bar? <laughs> I always ask for white wine on the basis that even even not great white wine is is generally drinkable, whereas for me, bad red wine is completely undrinkable. If I drink red wine, it has to be good. If it's going to be a complete dive, a neutral white is fine. What about you? <laughs> oh my gosh, I cannot drink wine at a dive bar. It freaks me out. I just know it's going to be totally insipid. So I have a couple strategies. One is to go with a spirit only cocktail. So like in the fall and winter, especially I tend to go for Manhattans. But the thing that I want to talk about today is tequila. Ah. So everyone loves tequila. And you know, I've been thinking about it as the weather gets better in New York, my very favorite thing to have at the end of a day when I really want to treat myself is a tequila soda with salt and three limes. Not two limes, <laughs> not one, and you might not have four. It's going to be three. I know. I absolutely go shamelessly to the bar and I say, I will have a tequila soda, which whatever whatever tequila that I know that they carry with salt and three limes. And I'm sure they roll their eyes. But, you know, they're are so many good tequilas on the market right now. I think at some dive bars, I end up getting Espolone because I think that is the kind of best of the mid-priced tequilas. Actually, Aret tequila also is pretty fantastic. But one that I'm really excited about is called Leyenda de Mexico. And it's by one of the few female master distillers in Mexico named Meli Barajas Cardenas. And she is an incredible force in Mexico. So her distillery actually makes the tequila for a ton of interesting brands like La Gratona, which is a, a really big selling brand in the United States. But recently I had the chance to taste Leyenda de Mexico. It's a higher priced tequila and it's a Blanco, the Blanco that I tried. She has the full range of expressions, but the Blanco just really has this kind of more vegetable true agave profile that I love. You know, as I researched about Meli Cardenas and her kind of style or ethos of working, you know, she's cooking the agave in traditional adobe ovens in the earth. Mm, wow. No chemicals, no additives. And I think one of the things that, you know, a lot of people don't realize is just how much 
shortcuts there can be in tequila making. Like you can essentially make it more through a vodka-esque type process called a diffuser. You can add glycerin, you could add sugar, you could add all of these sort of different flavoring agents. And what I love about her entire process is that she is not doing any of this sort of stuff at her distillery. So gotta say this brand, Landa de Mexico, it is a, you know, slightly more expensive brand. Their Blanco runs around, you know, 80, 85. It's harder to find, but man, it's one of the best tequilas I've tried lately. Oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah, you're right about the ingredients. There's a lot of misunderstanding about ingredients in wine. And one of the reasons is because people often look up the ingredients that are legal and they stumble into a general list for alcohol. And what they find is the list of things that are legal for spirits like caramel and sugar and stuff, which are completely illegal in wine. Mm, Yeah, definitely. And then they think that's where wine has a problem. It's actually a real problem for the wine industry. Oh, yeah. That people think that these ingredients go into wine. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, you know, we've talked a lot about the clean wine sort of marketing issues in the past. I mean, I know that both of us have written about this in the past, but it turns out that it's a really an issue across the entire drinks industry. So it'll be interesting over time with the EU for wine, for example, adding new ingredient labeling to see how this shakes out in the US and, you know, also in the spirits category. Indeed. I think a lot of people will be very disappointed, actually, because a lot of people want to see the process outlined and they're not going to see that. Yeah. yeah. They're just going to see, you know, a few they're going to see vitamin C and a few things like that on the label, which won't really tell you how the thing was made. But it's a step forward. Definitely. So what are you drinking? Well, I had a, a bottle this, this week, which I've been dying to try for a long time. It's actually the Donna Figata Rosé, which they did in tandem with Dolce & Gabbana. Oh. And I remember Jose Rallo, who is uh, the co-owner at the moment with the brother of Donna Figata, telling me about working with Dolce & Gabbana. Uh, Jose Rallo is a very colourful character, as in she wears <laughs> very bright colours. She's glamorous. And she's got a great singing voice. She'll burst into song. She's a really wonderful sort of ambassador for Sicily. And I'd asked her, you know, what did you discover working with Dolce & Gabbana? And she said, look, we used to think that we were really focused on detail, that we were as focused on detail and quality as it was possible to get. And she said, and then I worked with them Uh. and I discovered what true working with detail is. And she said it was really interesting that they tried to flatter Dolce & Gabbana by wearing Dolce & Gabbana clothes and the designers weren't interested in that at all. Oh, wow. They were interested in the authenticity of Donna Fagata. So anyway, I got the bottle. It's been a big bestseller. And the rosé itself is very nice. It's a rosé. But I realized the secret of this is the theatre and the drama around the wine. So you get this fantastic Dolce & Gabbana designed box Uh. and it's got, you know, it's just, it's bright and it's exciting. And then you open it up and it's got this bright and exciting label. And the rosé is just, it's really not about, I mean, the taste is nice, but it's not not about the taste of it, which is what we've been discussing earlier. It's it's about the theatre of it. And I think we really overlook this in wine, that if you're going to go out and just, you know, have an afternoon at the pool or wherever you drink your rosé, you're not really focused on flavour, you're focused on the conversation. And this is a wine that lets you focus on conversation while feeling like you're having something really, really special. So it was interesting. Well, I think that's interesting, especially as we've been discussing also luxury products and that the opportunity for wine really is around luxury right now, like the luxury wine market is going up and up. So maybe this sort of pomp and circumstance and drama of packaging and everything is a potential area of opportunity that, you know, kind of could be leaned into by some brands. Yeah, it's cardboard. It's it's fully sustainable. It's not some sort of packaging that, that's involving lots of glitz and glamour. It's a, it's a very simple package, but with just beautiful, beautiful Dolce & Gabbana design on it. And that makes it 
you know, sort of really exciting on the shelf. So that was what I tried this week. Oh, well, I'm going to try to get one of those shipped to me. Mm. And on that note, thanks so much for listening. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on The Business of Drinks. And if you liked what you heard, help us spread the word. Follow and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you tune in. And if there's some aspect of the business that we have not covered, but you want to know more about, let us know. Felicity, how can people reach out? They should email us at podcast at businessofdrinks.com. We'll see you soon.